So I know I've uh, mentioned a couple of times in the past um, some of my previous assignments before I came to Long Beach. Um, and right, right before I was here, or down at St. Mary's eight years ago, I was working in the diocese in the vocations office. Um, essentially, I was the priest recruiter. My job was to try to get men in the seminary, you know, ultimately to the priesthood. Um, it was definitely not a sought-after job um, in the diocese. Pretty much nobody really wanted it because it's just kind of a tough job, I think for obvious reasons. Um, you know, selling faith in this very secular culture, um, it's tough enough, right? I mean, just talk to parents trying to get their kids to go to church. Um, selling priesthood, kind of beyond tough. Um, anyway, I remember when I was, uh, shortly after I was assigned, I was at this uh, priest conf clergy conference uh, out at Huntington, and um, but only on the job a few weeks, and a retired priest came up to me. He knew I was now the new vocation director, and he kind of made it a point to come over to me uh, during a break, and he said to me um, two things. He said, remember, Brian, you're not selling cars. And, uh, and then he said, uh, so tell them the truth. You're not selling cars, so tell them the truth. And I kind of knew, even at that point, what he was saying, because there was an element of the job. There was a pressure. There was a pressure, sort of like a little bit of a sales thing going on. I got to get numbers. I got to get, I got to get, I got to try and, and if you were meeting with a particular guy who you really thought was a strong candidate, it was like, man, I got to, I got to seal this deal if, if I can. Um, but his point to me was a, it was a great one, and it was basically this. Don't try to hide the dents. Don't try to cover up the scratches when you're talking about priesthood. You're not selling a car. And it really was great advice. You know, I never had trouble, you know, anybody who would come to my office who's seeking out you know, a conversation about the priesthood. Well, I knew they were, I mean, they were sold on the church, ministry, service, faith. They respected what priests did. I didn't have to convince them of any of that. They never even would have met with me if they were questioning those things. But most of my conversations with the guys who were most honest was pretty much, tell me about the scratches and dents. Like, honestly tell me if I'll be happy in this life. Clearly, they were drawn toward it, but they weren't so sure it would completely fill them up, which was a completely legitimate question. So I really did try to be honest. Uh, the advice of that old priest was, I did remember it. And I just knew I wasn't going to be, you can't be like a used car salesman when you're talking about a life or a vocation. You got to be honest. And I really, I really tried to be. I remember I would talk to them about times in my priesthood up to that point when it wasn't easy. Um, you know, there was a period of time where most of my friends were starting to have kids. In fact, I was baptizing most of them. And, uh, you know, there'd be, there'd be times during that period when I'd be looking at these little kids and I'd be thinking, man, I, I wish I had my own, you know. 
I'll know these kids and you know, maybe I'll be sort of like their uncle, but like they're not mine. And that stung. Um, living in rectories sometimes is, is no picnic. Um, think about it, you know, you're a priest, you, uh, you live with your boss. I mean, how many people do that? How crazy that is. You're just like, you're looking for trouble. I gotta work for you all day long and now I gotta have dinner with you? And I gotta live in the same house as you? Um, I mean, these guys are lucky because they got a wonderful boss, you know, the priest here, but... No, I'm lucky because I, it, is, it is a good, it is, we're lucky to have a, a good house with good guys. But even that, even that being the case, it's like, I'm sure I get on their nerves at points. And I kind of do have the final say and having to put up with that. You got guys from different ages and different, coming from different cultures. All of that's challenging. Um, you know, when I, made a, when I made a promise of obedience, you know, I didn't think much about it when I, I was 27 years old when I promised obedience to the bishop. But as you get older, you know, you start to be like, some of this is crazy. Like, why do I, I sort of like, I promised away my life in some aspects. He could call me and in a heartbeat say, okay, I need you to go now, go out to this part of the island and serve in this parish because I need you to do it right now. And hey, I may not be looking to do that. You know, you get to a middle-aged point in your life and you're kind of looking for kind of consistency and autonomy and you don't really have that as a priest. So I was honest about all this stuff. Um, And I'd say, yeah, it's not easy. It's not, times it's absolutely not easy. But when you make those sacrifices, you get something in return. You really do. And this isn't just a priest thing. This is a commitment thing. When you make sacrifices in life, you do get something in return. Think about a legitimate, authentic friendship. Think about a great marriage. Think about a great mother or father in relation to their kids. There's no way great appears in those descriptions if sacrifice isn't part of the equation. You're not great if you don't sacrifice. So I even, you know, I knew when I was talking to these guys and I was honest about, you know, the dents and the, the scratches of priesthood. I, I really did mean, and I still do, like, yeah, you're right. It's like, there is sacrifice, but you do get something in return. We always do. It's like you lose this, but you get that. It's this gospel. It's exactly what Jesus speaks of in this gospel tonight. It says these Greeks, this group of Greek people, who had, they said they had come to worship at the Passover feast and they wanted to see Jesus. Well, we don't really know who these Greek guys were, except we can pretty much presume this. These guys were smart. They were educated. They were probably asking the right questions, the questions that smart people should ask about life. What makes for a a purposeful life? How do I find meaning in my life? What's the, the right way to do it? These guys were searching. They heard about Jesus, and now they want to meet him. I mean, can you blame them? So I guess they knew Philip, and they say to him, hey, you know him. Can you hook us up? Can you get us a meeting with him? So Philip's like, uh, let me see. 
So he goes to Andrew, and Andrew's like, I don't know, let's go see. So the two of them go to Jesus, and they basically say, hey, can you meet up with these Greek guys? They want to pick your brain. Can you free up your calendar a little bit for them? And then his response is what's really kind of strange. He doesn't even answer the question. He never says, yeah, sure, bring him in. He also doesn't say, no, I can't be bought. He doesn't answer the question. But then he starts talking about death and sacrifice. He says, unless a grain of wheat dies, there'll be no life. No life, no fruit, unless there's some element of death. That's what he says when they're asking about hooking him up with these guys. It's like lose your life in this world and you're going to gain it in the next. I mean, we all believe that. We believe in heaven. If I do it right here, I will spend eternity there. But it's not just that. I think that that principle applies here too. Do it right here and you'll have a great life here in the big picture. So like Jesus was kind of like, in a sense, like, okay, you guys want to meet me? You all want to see me? You want to pick my brain? Well, this is it. This is my brain. This is what I'm about. No sacrifice, then no life. Good luck if you're not willing to embrace sacrifice in the course of your life. In other words, I think it's like to become who we were meant to be, something's got to die. In order to live great, meaningful lives, we should always be looking at those aspects of those lives, parts of them, which need to go, which need to die like that grain of wheat. And that's usually wrapped in some kind of sacrificial thing. That's his response to, hey, Jesus, we'd like to meet you. He's like, okay, no pain, no gain. It's pretty much what he says. That's the secret to life. You guys remember uh, David Wright, the, uh, the great Met third baseman, um, retired a couple of years ago, on four, sadly, because his career was cut short. He was very young still, but he just had multiple injuries. They said that he would have, uh, had he not been hurt and he had played a full career, he probably would have made the Hall of Fame. That's how great his numbers were for like the first half of his career, or for all of his career, really, but he just, it was cut so short. That's how good he was. I remember reading an article about him, you know, back when he was playing, and they were describing at one point in this article what he was like when he was in high school, kind of his work ethic. This sacrifice thing was very real to David Wright. It says David Wright probably spent more time in the batter's box than any high school player of his era. Besides team batting practice and his own work in the local batting cages, he arranged his class schedule at Hickory High School so he could get an, after, an extra hour of hitting in the afternoon. He would snag a teammate and a bucket of balls and they would take turns throwing to each other, even on a game day, always on an off day. And then this is what he said. This is right. I remember days when it was tough to stick with the program. It seemed like everybody else was at the beach or the mall or doing something fun. And I was at the gym or at the field. 
and it wasn't easy. But what they say about no pain and no gain, I think that's true. I think it's proved true for me. The pain was worth it. And this isn't just about baseball. You know, uh, if, you have a, if you haven't gotten a bulletin tonight, grab it on your way out. Um, check out the front page of it, the cover of it. Uh, if you got it with you, take a look at it now. The picture is from uh, last week. Uh, I took it. I was uh, standing in the lobby during, you know, midway through Mass, and I saw in the corner of the lobby there was uh, that lacrosse equipment. Some kid uh, left his equipment in the corner there. Presumably he was in here in the church. Presumably he had practice or a game and he made time to be here. I'll bet this too, and I don't know who the kid is. I'll bet on a Sunday afternoon after practice or after a game, the last thing he wanted to do was be here. Can you blame him? But he or she was. Like somehow, on some level, they were like, no, I, like being here matters. I gotta be here. I gotta be at the practice. I gotta be at the game. Yeah, but that can't win out over being here. So I guess, you know, the practice was so close to the mass time, he just came right from the field to here. I don't know who that kid is, and I don't know how, what his or her lacrosse career is gonna be like, but I know this much. He gets it. That kid gets it. It's this gospel. You know, I was reading, uh, I was watching, uh, it was a couple of weeks ago, uh, clicking around on TV, and remember the movie Rain Man? Uh, it's a pretty good movie. I hadn't seen it since I first saw it, I think, years ago. Dustin Hoffman and uh, Tom Cruise. Dustin Hoffman's amazing in it. He got the Academy Award. He plays this autistic uh, savant. I think that's how you describe him. He was a socially, emotionally crippled guy. Really couldn't, could barely communicate with people in any kind of typical way, um, but also had like this computer-like memory. So he was able to just memorize unbelievable statistics, literally like the phone book. Um, and he's in this institution. He really can't possibly live on his own. And then he's taken on this trip. The whole movie is basically this road trip by his brother. Tom Cruise plays his much younger brother. Tom Cruise didn't even know he was his brother. He was institutionalized that early on. Their father dies. That's kind of the beginning of the movie. And then Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise is this creep, really. He's just sort of this self-absorbed, greedy, immature, narcissistic jerk. Um, and he's really angry because he's realized that he hasn't, he's gotten almost nothing, going to get nothing in the will. He got his father's car, his cool old classic car, but that's it. And his brother is getting $3 million. And he's like, he's going to be, he's an institution. Like, what, the, what does he need $3 million for? So the first half of the movie, Tom Cruise is desperately trying to get the money. His name is Charlie Babbitt, Tom Cruise. And he's really just trying to steal the inheritance from his very limited brother, or at least contest it. He's just using him. 
but maybe midway through the movie, things begin to change. He begins to change. He begins to see things in his brother, in Dustin Hoffman, and things about himself. He starts to recognize the humanity of his brother, and he changes. In fact, for the first time in his life, he begins to think of somebody else instead of himself. He dies to self. He starts to allow aspects of himself which are gross and dark and sinful, like he allows them to die. And he becomes somebody else. It's the gospel. Jesus says it's a grain of wheat. Okay, call it what you want. It's Charlie Babbitt in the movie. Like, what has to die? What part of ourselves has to die in order to make our lives heroic and great and meaningful? Something's got to go, right? Probably more than something. It's like with that priest. That's what I kind of used to say to these, these, these prospects. Like, when we sacrifice, when we serve others, something happens. We get something in return. We get a better life. And if we play it out through our entire lives, says Jesus in his gospel, we get eternal life. But way before that, in this life, the more we sacrifice for others, the better this life is. And that crashes right in the face of a selfish culture, a culture which doesn't even believe in God, let alone virtues like this gospel. Sir, we would like to see Jesus. What an important question. What a, what a great Lent question. We want to see Jesus. We want to pick his brain. We want to know what he's about. Well, you know what, maybe, let's maybe, I, if he was asked, if we could get a hold of him today, maybe this would be his response today. You want to see me? You want to meet me? Great. You want to know me? You want to know what I'm about? Go watch Rain Man. Become Charlie Babbitt. Or David Wright. Or the kid who left his lacrosse equipment in the lobby. Sacrifice. Die to self.